Radio Mano Papachango. This is a good one. Uh, this is Reza Aslan, who's one of the world's foremost scholars of religion. Uh, super smart guy, really nice. Unfortunately, we didn't get as much time to talk as uh, I would have liked, as I normally do, because uh, we were caught between. On the one side, we had uh, he was on the phone with AT and T when I called. I mean, when I showed up at his place and uh, he had been on hold for half an hour already trying to get his Wi-Fi set up or something. And it was the kind of thing you just can't hang up when you're in, when you're on the line for half an hour, you've already listened to that goddamn hold song over and over and over. And finally you're talking to someone and you, it feels like you're close to resolving the situation. You can't give up then, Right. So anyway, we hung around uh, for a while while he was trying to resolve that. And uh, and then on the other side, he had another interview right after this one. So instead of a leisurely 90 minute talk, which I think we both would have enjoyed, uh, we sort of packed it into 40 minutes or whatever it was. So if you're on a long drive and you're Looking for a podcast to get you from Kansas to Tennessee. This isn't going to do it for you, but uh, it'll get you across town. Anyway, before I get to my conversation with Reza, which again, I had so much fun. He's a really smart guy and he really, uh, he's fun to talk to. You know, he's my favorite kind of person. He knows a lot and he's generous with his knowledge, um, but... I didn't get any sort of pedantic, I'm smarter than everyone else vibe from him at all, uh, which I definitely do get from some people, not people on the podcast. I mean, that's one of the things people keep suggesting. I get a lot of suggestions, you know, guest suggestions, which I appreciate. And a lot of them I've followed up on and, and have led to uh, wonderful conversations and friendships and all that. Um but I don't go for the guests where it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, I don't, I don't like, I don't want, this isn't a wrestling match. I don't see this as a competitive or a confrontational endeavor. Um, you know, if I had a talk show on TV, then that would be different. I would challenge people and, and, um, you know, do a, like a hard talk kind of, thing for those of you who know the BBC show I think it's called Hard Talk uh you know I push a little more or whatever get the drama and all that but in this case I just want to bring some attention to people who are doing something interesting whether they're famous already or they're not whether they're travelers or writers or musicians or whatever and uh I I, I want to create a safe space for them to talk about who they are and what their life's about so I don't really want to have like someone like Sam Harris. Uh, I just don't think we're going to have a good conversation because the guy with all due respect, as they say, which is a funny thing, because anytime you hear someone say with all due respect, you know, you're about to get smacked. Right. 
it's a, it's a dead giveaway. Um, but you know, if you heard me chatting with Joe Rogan about him the other day, I know he and Joe are very close, and and I certainly don't uh, mean any disrespect to anyone. But I've just I just never hear Sam really have a good time. He just doesn't seem like a guy who relaxes. And the vibe that I get from him is that if you don't agree with him, it's because you're not smart enough to agree with him. Like he's so fucking sure of his positions on everything that there really doesn't seem to be any room for disagreement or nuance or entertaining other possibilities. And to me, that's not an attractive quality in, in somebody, not somebody I really want to hang out with. Now, I may be wrong. Uh, and as I say, I haven't read Sam's books, you know, and, and I have very close friends who love his stuff and are I even have a friend, Kyle, who has bought two Sam Harris books and dropped them at my door, and I still haven't read them. I will someday, probably, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe I'm wrong, and, and maybe there's a different uh, character that comes through in the writing. But my point is, um, there's been a, a lot of talk about that. If Sam invites me on his podcast, I'll go. Um because he probably has a much bigger audience than me, so I always, <laughs> I'm a whore. I'm an audience whore. I admit it. I don't care. Hey, shout out to global listeners. You Australians. I don't know what's up in Australia, but there seem to be a lot of people who listen to this podcast in Australia and who, who um, are supporting through Patreon because every time I send out a thing saying, hey, if I owe you a t-shirt or something, let me know. And you know, somebody, they'll get back to me and be like, yeah, man, I'd love a t-shirt. And I'm like, oh, good. And then it's like Australia. Oh, fuck. That's like a $40 postage to send a $20 shirt to Australia. But yeah, lots of Australians, Sweden, Belgium. Uh, thank you, all of you for listening to me, especially because I'm yammering on about America so much. You must get bored out of your fucking minds. Uh, another thing I wanted to say, people write to me asking for a referral to a local therapist. And I guess the reason they're asking me is because they're looking for a therapist who's going to be open-minded about sexual issues, about marital issues, who's not going to come at them with this typical, you know, open relationships never work bullshit or, um, you know, a woman who enjoys having sex without necessarily being in love with everybody she fucks must have some mental disorder or self-esteem issues or all that kind of stuff. So if you are a sex positive, open minded, uh, chilled out, non sort of conventional towing the party line therapist, uh, send me your info. Contact me through the website, chrisryanphd.com. You'll see under Chris, there's a contact form. Send me your info. Uh, send a, a description of who you are, what you do, what your approach is, um, phone number, and uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll make a listing on my website to, to help people with this. Because I know a lot of people are looking for somebody to talk to, and they don't want to... Um, you know, have to deal with some closed-minded conventional thinker. So if you're open to psychedelics, you're open to altered states, you're open to um, 
a sex positive approach to things, let me know and I will forward uh, that information to anybody who asked for it. Now, last bit of housekeeping before I bring you over to Reza. By the way, this conversation with Reza happened this morning. So this one's coming hot, hot out of the oven. Um, I don't talk about my family much, my personal stuff. Um, but I did want to take this opportunity to give a shout out to my little sister. She's my only sister. Uh, she is doing, she, she's always done. I'll tell you a little bit about my sister. She, years ago in the early nineties, she had a job in high tech. Uh, she was making a lot of money. She was like the the personal assistant to the CEO of some some I forget what company it was. It was like a antivirus a doctor or somebody anti antivirus. Uh, she was pulling down big bucks, really working her ass off. Uh, you know the typical eighty hour work week kind of thing. And I don't know exactly what it was because I was living in Spain and you know we didn't get to talk too much, but. She quit. She's just like, fuck it, I'm quitting and I'm going to go around the world. And she did. And it was one of these things where she quit and everyone was like, oh, but Beth, if you only stayed like another month, you'd get the bonus, the year end bonus. And she's like, yeah, yeah, but I'm quitting. I'm out. So she did. She followed through with it. And then the company got sold. And anyone who had worked there within the last six months or something got this payout. So she ended up with like another I don't know, 50 grand or something on top of what she had saved. And um, so good karma there, huh? Anyway, she went, traveled around the world by herself, uh, Egypt and, you know, balloon rides in Africa and uh, she went all over the place. And, uh, and then she came back to the U.S. and she just decided she wasn't going to do bullshit work anymore no matter how well it paid. And so she worked in a series of nonprofits and sort of, you know, bouncing around looking for the right fit. And it's hard for her because she's a take charge kind of person. So she gets a job and she's busting her ass and, you know, getting a lot of stuff done. And I don't know how many of you have worked in nonprofits, but I have uh, a long time ago now, but a lot of nonprofits, there's a lot of sitting around going on. Um, there's a lot of like, yay, we could be making a lot more money somewhere else. So we're, we don't need to really work very hard. You know, they're paying us shit anyway. And uh, there, there's a lot of self-congratulatory stasis in a lot of nonprofits. And so that makes things uncomfortable for, for my sister because she's getting shit done and making everyone look bad. And so... Anyway, finally, a year or two, three, I don't know, two years ago, she, you know, had another nonprofit and difficulties, personnel issues and all that. So she just said, fuck it. She founded her own nonprofit and they're taken off. And what she's been doing for years now is working with kids in L.A. who age out of the foster care system. I don't know if, if you know about this, but. It is crazy. I mean, there's so many fucked up, ridiculous things about what's going on in America. But one of the worst is the way we treat children. We've got like a quarter of all children in America are below the poverty line. It's insane. And more than half 
of uh, non-white kids are below the poverty line and the poverty line is low. You know, they make that line really low because they know that that affects the statistics and nobody wants to look bad. So the, the, it's a bad, bad situation. Anyway, when, so you're, you know, you're born, your, your mother's a heroin addict, your father's in prison, you, you know, your mom's going in and out of rehab. Like, where do you live? Well, if the state takes you away from your mother or your, their mother's relatives won't take you, whatever, you go into foster care. Now, foster care, sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there are lots of different situations going on with foster care. But when you turn 18, you're out. You're out. What the fuck? You're 18 years old. Here, here's your shoes. Good luck. You're out. The state's not paying for you to have a place to live anymore. You're 18. You already know. You, we already know you don't have a, a good family situation, or you wouldn't have been in foster care in the first place. So, what my sister Beth is doing is working with kids who are aging out of the foster care system, helping them with educational opportunities, finding them housing because you know otherwise you're going to be homeless. Then what? You're going to sell some drugs or you know mug somebody or what, whatever you got to do to survive. And then you're in prison. That's how we help kids. That's how we help the mentally ill. We shut down the mental hospitals, put them all in prison. It's incredible. It's incredible. Anyway, in crazy is what I was going to say there. Um, so her organization is called Stepping Forward. It's based here in LA, uh, and they work with these kids who are aging out of the foster care system, helping them get on their feet, get into school, get job training, get a place to live, clothes, study supplies, whatever she can do and her organization can do to help them. So they're doing a fundraiser here at the end of the year, and I just thought I would give a shout out to her. If this is something you'd like to contribute to, the organization is steppingforwardla.org. That's Stepping Forward LA, as in Los Angeles, dot O-R-G. It's um, tax deductible, so if, uh, you know, you want to drop some, some cash in that organization and deduct it from your taxes, that's totally legal. And, um, you know, tell her Chris sent you, maybe she'll, she's not real impressed by her porn award-winning podcasting brother, I don't think. So, you know, maybe this will be a way to... Show her I'm not a total loser as a sibling. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, all right, that's it. I'm going to stop talking. This is, by the way, I'm leaving for Baja tomorrow morning. So I'm going to put this up right away. And uh, and then I had a really cool conversation, a nice conversation with uh, Simon Rex and Malcolm Fleischner, <laughs> whose name I get wrong all the time, the other day. Uh, and that's a longer one. So that'll get you all the way to Tennessee. And I'll put that up. Uh, that'll go up Thursday. All right. So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast. This is Reza Aslan. Really nice guy. Uh, go out and buy his book. We talk about it in the podcast, but it's called God, A Human History. Uh, and his earlier book is uh, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And then I think his Let's see, what else does he have? No God but God, that was very well known. Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in the Age of Globalization. All his books are bestsellers. They've all got 
at least four stars and on Amazon. They're very popular, very well written. Um, he's a smart guy and a nice guy, which is more important as far as I'm concerned. Reza Aslan, I'm going to play you out with a song that's been haunting me ever since I heard it the other day. I think one of you sent me a link to this. It was on YouTube. It was It's an Australian um, radio show where they do covers. I forget what it's called, what the show is called. But this song is called Big Jet Plane. It's originally by Angus and Julia Stone. And their version of it is lovely as well. Really nice. Um, but this is a cover by a band named Tuka. T-U-K-A. Uh, I really like it. It's, as I say, it's kind of haunting and ethereal and otherworldly. So it seems um, appropriate for this conversation about the spirit world and altered states and all that kind of stuff. Hope everything's going great for you and your world. This is Big Jet Plane. I grew up at the end of a long dirt road. No street lights, just a couple trees. We see the wallabies bounding around in their brown fur coats. I'm stays with the whole way home. Jigging my step, nothing but the air in my lungs. Filling my breath, singing my songs that I wrote in my head. And every now and then, when I look up at the sky, I can see a cucumber fly. I begin to daydream, think about my wingspan. Chase the sun around the globes, everywhere I go. It's summertime, wonder when people get stuck in the same place. Don't be thinking about what they say. I'll fuck it, take them by the humble pie. Don't you worry about what they think. Politicians only think about its net worth. For me, Sydney to West Perth, Topman and the Cape Bay. You put the legwork in, but you get burnt out. That's why you sing piss every payday. Hey, have you ever gone away? Do you ever think about a holiday? Are you in the business of making money? If you haven't got a dollar, then I guess you go away. Wait, maybe we can win the lottery. Get high by the beach, Alana Del Rey. Maybe you can follow my lead. Get fly like a kite in the breeze. Yeah. I'm gonna take you far.
I'm sitting in Reza Aslan's, what I think must be the kids' playroom, because there are toys everywhere. <laughs> Slash den. Slash den to be. Uh, and we've just, um, I've just witnessed Reza contra AT&T in the struggle <laughs> with one of the, the gods of the modern world. Ugh, AT&T. And Reza lost, or at least it's it's a draw at this point. Yeah, I'm always, I'm <laughs> always going to lo- lose when... <laughs> It's against AT&T. You know, you can't beat AT&T, man. I know. Just the, it's the worst. And there's nothing you can do about it, too. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I say it's like a god. It's, yeah. it's like they're inaccessible. You have to talk to a representative. <laughs> like, that guy gets minimum exactly. wage. And he's probably, you know, didn't sound like yeah. he was in India. but There's no, there's no use in, uh, in getting mad at him. Right. You've got no direct line to the real power. And he keeps telling me something that is fundamentally not true right <laughs> He's like this is your reality and I right like, i keep saying no it's not it's as if he were telling you that <laughs> masturbation is going to send you to hell it's, it's fundamentally uh, not true no it's fundamentally <laughs> not true other, other things but not masturbation <laughs> so anyway thanks for letting me barge in on your yeah your, welcome your you're struggle welcome Sorry with about the, the modern uh, world yeah, yeah. Uh, you and I have something in common. We've both been told by production companies that we are going to be the Anthony Bourdain of something. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I saw, I don't know if it, I read it or I saw you in some conversation that you were told you'd be the Anthony Bourdain of religion. That's right. It made me laugh because I was pitching a show in LA a few years ago and everyone was telling me I'd be the Anthony Bourdain of sex. Ooh, that I sounds go better. It does, although I, I kind of suspect Anthony Bourdain is the Anthony Bourdain of sex. And he, <laughs> Probably, yeah. He has that vibe about him. Yeah. Um, but uh, luckily your show got off the ground. It, it's <laughs> made an emergency landing, apparently, but you're going to, I guess it's coming back. You're going to, well, it, it you took probably a long, can't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it took a long time for me to actually get the show back so that I own it again. Right, right. Uh, and so now that's happened, which is nice, and now it's just... Uh, you know, uh, the process of, of putting it somewhere and letting people like at least watch it and then figuring out whether we want to make more or we right. want to do something a little bit different. And, and it was very successful, so it shouldn't be, hopefully it won't be a It was, it sell. was really successful. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's this weird thing where, you know, it, it'll always have the stink of CNN on it. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of other outlets um, are wary of that. They'd rather have something completely new than mm. something that, that seems like it used to be, you know, on CNN. So, yeah, they don't want uh, castoffs. No, they don't want castoffs. Exactly. Yeah. So what? Uh, we we only have about half an hour or so, so I, I don't want to waste too much time just being chatty. But what's the? What would you? You know, I hate this question when I get asked it, but <laughs> the elevator pitch, the quick, the thesis of your latest book. The thesis of the latest book is that the entire history of human spirituality can be viewed as one long, uh, interconnected, and cohesive attempt 
to make sense of God by implanting in God human emotions, right. human motivations, human characteristics, human attributes, right. human virtues and vices, even a human body. Mm -hmm. um, in short, by um, making God us. Um, and then, and in fact, what I think the vast majority of people think about when they think about God, whether they believe in God or not, is essentially a divine version of ourselves. And that this is a process that's embedded in right. our cognitive processes. It embedded goes, biologically or culturally? Biologically, no. And culture has nothing to do with it. That's the remarkable thing about it. In fact, um, it's a process that very likely predates Homo sapiens. Um, right. It is uh, a, a function of the brain. The in pro other words. Okay. No, but let's let's tease this out a little bit. The process that predates Homo sapiens could be a quest for justice, which has been demonstrated in primate studies. Could be a capacity for awe, which is certainly recognized in some observations of chimpanzees just gazing at sunsets that primatologists have spoken about. But projecting a sense of the supernatural onto an anthropomorphized figure of the same species? How would so we justice that? and awe are not um, what we would refer to as religious phenomena. Mm. They are not part of the religious impulse. Really? Yes. How, they are not. Wh what's the evidence? Well, that? what you're saying, what you are talking about is byproducts of the religious impulse, but they are not themselves um, a part of the religious impulse. Justice has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. There is no. Don't all religions prescribe not, justice? Not in the slightest. Really? And in fact, it's important to understand that we're not talking about religion. What you and I mean by religion, which is an institutional, doctrinal set of, uh, you know, symbols and metaphors, is. I don't know, maybe barely 15, 14, 15,000 years old. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the impulse which predates Homo sapiens. And you can use the word faith if you want to. You can use um, the term substance dualism. Uh, I use the word the religious impulse, meaning the, the com compulsion. No problem. The, the compulsion to... Um, uh, to to recognize yourself as being both material and immaterial. Okay, so a, a, colloquially so that, we call a soul, a, right, a sense of soul, soul or yeah. spirit. So that way predates any idea of morality. It way predates concepts of justice. Um, those things are functions of the religious impulse. They're not explanations for the religious impulse. Okay, but the, the, an impulse toward justice. Uh, Franz, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Franz Duvall, the Dutch primatologist who's done a lot of fantastic work with chimps and bonobos and, and macaques particularly. Mm -hmm. um, he's located uh, the impulse toward justice in pre-human primates. So to say that the religious impulse predates a sense of justice or any sense of morality how are you going to pin that down where are you Again, getting you're dates confusing for justice and morality don't those are not the same thing justice is part of the adaptive survival process the idea being that okay. i deserve a grape 
and so I can understand you the possibility that Francois. other yeah <laughs> that other people possibly deserve right. a grape as well. Right. But they deserve a grape only in so far as they receiving a grape means that I would also receive a grape. So that's a that's a survival mechanism that is utterly divorced from either questions of morality um, or certainly questions of religion and spirituality and faith and the soul and all of those things. Mm. I think what is often what often happens when people talk about um, religion in its evolutionary sense is that they confuse the function of religion, the things that religion does, right. with the reasons for religion existing. Right. So religion creates social cohesion. True. Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. not yeah. exactly. Yeah. But that's not why religion exists. Although some people argue it is. Right. But those people don't. People don't argue that anymore. I mean, that was a big. That was a very popular form of of an argument for religion. It was originally created by Emil Durkheim, the father of sociology, um, and it and it was in fashion for quite some time now. But evolutionary biologists simply recognize that it's a false argument. I mean, number one, for <clears throat> for that argument to hold, that religion exists is religion exists because it creates social cohesion. Social cohesion is an adaptive advantage, and so therefore, um, that's why there is such there is a universal phenomenon called religion. The problem is is that for that argument to hold, um, religion would have to have a uniquely uh, adaptive advantage towards social cohesion, and the fact of the matter is, is that um, the most cohesive force in society uh, in our ancient past was not religion; it was kinship. Right, our, but why would it have to be uniquely? Uh, because evolution can be cumulative. There right. can be kinship. There can be clan identity. There can be tribal identity. So the ar the argument would have to be that a, a community that uh, combines that creates its social cohesion based on adherence to a set of symbols mm. has an adaptive advantage over a community that doesn't. And there is no evidence for that to be the case. Because it, the, the community that has kinship is the community that actually survives. Because as you yourself said, religion is not just a cohesive element, it's a profoundly divisive element as well. It's constantly about creating new in-groups and out-groups. Um, and so the, the argument for that you know, being the reason for, you know, the, the primary reason why religion actually exists as a, again as a universal mm. phenomenon, it, it's, it's hard to sustain. What about religion as a means <clears throat> of social control, an institution of, of essentially political control? So once again, what you are referring to is religion as an institutional right. phenomenon, right. which is Not a very impulse. new yeah, yeah. idea. Yeah. That's the problem. Same with morality. There's no reason to, th what you call religious morality is barely 5,000 years old. You know, we, I think we live in a world in which we just assume that religion has as its primary function the creation of a moral code and perhaps even a divine right. divine lawgiver but that was not the case not even with the ancient Greeks or the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Mesopotamians let alone right. with our paleolithic ancestors right well I, I wouldn't argue that religion uh, creates the code so much as that it um, co-ops a pre-existing perhaps biological code which goes back to the grapes sure. and the cucumbers yeah. and justice and and so on and so forth. 
Kind of like the way Christianity sort of overlaid pre-existing solstice, you know, and all that. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about religion as an institution, yes, it is fundamentally um, a, a, um, you know, an institution that's about manipulation and control over the elements, um, over the universe, over reality, and certainly over populations. Right. Um, But again, you know, that's very obvious. What is less obvious is the impulse that led to the creation of that religion in the first place. Um, That impulse towards faith, towards the soul, you know, these are both obviously somewhat anachronistic terms for it, but that impulse is far more difficult for us to to locate and understand. Right. We don't know why it exists. What we do know is that it's universal, is that it exists in all people, in all cultures, in at all times. The imp- no, let's let's cuz I know I've been sort of flipping around and getting confused here. We're talking about an acknowledgement of a non-physical yes. essence to human lives and yep. also in many pantheistic or animistic religion I don't even know see this is the problem the yeah, language yeah, doesn't I know. map well to what we're trying yeah. to talk about um, like for example Buddhism do you consider Buddhism to be a religion most definitely really because yeah. many Buddhists don't they consider no, it a no, philosophy no. of life no that's incorrect well I've no. been told that by many by Buddhists. a bunch of white Buddhists living in Los Angeles or that's what you've been told Thailand that way. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've been around <laughs> no but I understand. don't don't discriminate against me because of my white Los Angeles no, but, I, but I, again I think that that is such a mis that's such a common Western misunderstanding yeah. and mischaracterization I'm not talking about Buddhism, yoga Buddhists you know <laughs> yeah but I do think that look look at it's it's true that wait, okay, in wait, the let, minority Theravada branch yeah, of Buddhism, right, um, and certainly in certain sects like Zazen, uh-huh. uh, Zen Buddhism, um, the 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 Buddhist philosophies that have been profoundly influenced by Chinese ideas, um, that they, those are non-theistic versions of Buddhism, right, but they right. are a profound minority. Um, in in sort of the world's Buddhist population, right. um, the main branch of Buddhism, the Mahayana Buddhism, um, is not just theistic, um, but it actually views the Buddha um, in in, div- in divine terms. But you know, didn't the Buddha, the Buddha himself say, "I'm not divine"? Yeah, don't worship me. This is ridiculous. That doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, so you know, sure. The reluctant uh, Messiah. Yeah, yeah, the idea, yeah. the idea that I mean, Jesus wasn't a God either, and, yeah. and you know, the, some quarter of the population of the planet thinks that he was. So, I think, yeah. I think that the 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 larger issue here is when you look at this idea that um, there is there is something beyond the material realm right and that that thing is something that we can focus our intention towards um, the idea that we ourselves are uh, are have sort of a, a dual nature right the the material and immaterial body and soul body and mind psyche however you want to refer to a consciousness um, that is a universal experience and it creates a kind of an evolutionary puzzle because 
regardless of the last two centuries of trying to figure out why this thing exists, why it has always existed, why it exists in all people and in all cultures, we just don't know the answer to it. The most common answer nowadays, um, the one certainly that, that many cognitive scientists and evolutionary theorists put forward, is that it's just an accident. Like a spandrel. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. That it's, um, it's the byproduct of some other adaptive advantage that we gained very early on in our evolution. Indeed, as I said earlier, before our species Homo sapiens even existed. Because we do see evidence of that same um, idea in Neanderthal Unquestionably, you're talking about burial rites, burial rites, uh, the use of the use of um, votives and uh, clearly religious figurines, um, the um, material uh, evidence for <clears throat> ritual ceremonial behavior. We see that uh, in Neanderthals, um, and although this evidence is a little bit more hazy, we also see it in Homo erectus. Yeah, I've spent a fair bit of time in the caves. I live in Spain. Mm. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Pyrenees, and I've even been in Lascaux. Oh, fun. Um, it, it's interesting that, and I know you've written a, uh, a lot about the caves, in this book particularly, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's interesting that there are so few human figures in yeah. the caves. And the one that's in, there's only one, I believe, in Lascaux, and it's of... Uh, a human figure leaning back with a bird's head and an erection. Yeah. Which um, the interpretation of that that I've read is that he's dreaming because he flies as a bird in his dreams and the erection is common in men who are in uh, REM stage of sleep. Um, I've never heard that, but I think what you are saying is probably a take on the, the, the most common interpretation mm. of these um, therianthropic figures, which is um, these um, hybrid, animal-human right. hybrids. Right. Um, and uh, the, the traditional interpretation is that they are shaman. Right. Um, and that, yes, that the power of a shaman comes from his dreams and from his altered states. Yeah. That shaman often use animals as um, a kind of spirit guides. That the primary function of a shaman is to essentially be able to move from plane to plane. So if you think about the fact that our ancient ancestors saw the universe as tiered, right? That they that they thought that there was there were three levels. It was the the the, the up, upper level, the sky, the middle level, the earth, and then the lower level underground, which, which is why all of these things happen inside of right. caves. And they don't have the the upper and the lower do not map to heaven and hell. They no, don't, they, they don't have positive no and negative. Heaven or hell did not exist as a concept until about right. 1100 BC. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that, that idea um, is why when we see these human-animal hybrids, the common assumption is that they are representations of shaman, yeah. usually in the midst of some kind of alteration. Um, that's the best guess that we have, yeah. and I, d I don't doubt it. Um, and the caves seem to have been for some sort of spiritual practice. That, there's I think, no food there's there, no one was living yeah, there. There's still, look, there are still archaeologists who think that 
that this is nothing more than caveman graffiti. That there is absolutely no spiritual... No. If you've been yeah. there, you know that's bullshit. Because it total takes, bullshit. It's very hard to get it. Some of those sites Deliberately. Like, you know, it's Mio del- are so, so far back. You have to go through an ordeal yeah. in order to actually get get to this experience. Um, The images are never left on sort of flat, easy to access, wide open spaces. On the contrary, they're almost always in the most difficult to to access area. Some of them had scaffolding to reach it. In fact, many of them are placed in such a way that you have to yourself be at a particular angle in order to watch it. what that mm. indicates I like to how us, you said, watch it. Yeah, because the flickering of the flame, there is motion. Precisely, yeah. and in fact, we know there's a there's a great study now done, particularly on Lascaux, but also in Le Trois-Frères in mm. the in the um, southern Pyrenees, um, in which um, we have digi- digitized the drawings and put them in motion, mm. and it's quite clear that what we are seeing is an animal specifically meant to be moving. Right, um, and. What that indicates to us is that the entire cave experience itself, not just the images on the walls, but the cave itself was meant to elicit a very specific uh, spiritual experience. That that's, that's what they were trying to, to do. I kind of uh, refer to it as the sort of Paleolithic equivalent of um, you know, the Stations of the Cross. Right. Right? You right. know, you, every nook and cranny, yeah. every cavern. Or the song lines of the Aboriginal people. Yes, everything is, is, is deliberately uh, put together so that you are undergoing a, an experience. Right. It's a sequential process of illumination. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that, that, again, gives us probably our, our most, our, our closest look at what Paleolithic spirituality must have um, been like what it, what it must have in, involved. And what do you think is the role, uh, if any, of um, psychedelic substances in the origins of these? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any debate left on that question. I mean, it's very clear that altered states um, were an integral part of the Paleolithic spiritual experience, um, and those states were almost always, uh, they almost always included some kind of um, digestive, whether Mm. that was, um, you know, uh, mushrooms or whether it was the inhalation of smoke. Um, Even tobacco is a strong... Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, that, that, you know, there are, there are still a lot of debates in, uh, in the study of religion, and that's not one of them anymore. Really? Yeah. yeah. That and, must have and, been you know, a pretty we even quick have, shift. Yeah, and in the earliest, the earliest writings that we have, like, for instance, the Rig Veda, um, mm. you know, we, we have Soma. indication of, uh, yeah, of Soma, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, also called Homa in, in, uh, in Indo-Iran. Which is thought to be Amanita Muscaria. That's right? what the, the, the current yeah, yeah. Uh, Very consensus mushroom is exactly here at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, you know all the right. theories about the flying reindeer and all this? Uh, no, no, I haven't so, heard that. I don't know what that has to do yeah. with the flying reindeer, though. Well, Amanita muscari is very interesting because the, um, the, the psychoactive principal molecule is metabolized without losing any of its strength. It, uh. it's, it's entire as it comes through the system. So. 
the theory is well. First of all, we know that the uh, what are the 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 are they Sam the 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 people in nor the northern Finland and Norway. Mm. Um, uh, they the shamans there would drink reindeer piss after they'd eeten oh, Amanita right. muscaria, or sometimes they would shoot a reindeer yeah. and eat the meat, and the meat itself would be psychoactive. Interesting. And because it's very, it's toxic to yeah. eat it directly, so they would look for ways around it. Um, and uh, but sometimes a shaman himself would eat some Amanita muscaria, and then people would drink his piss and huh. get trip on it. Thereby, you know, proving that he's like right. the most powerful spiritual person. So there's this idea that that's the flying reindeer. Yeah. And you know the witches, right? The yeah, flying yeah, yeah, right, right, brooms exactly, yeah. Because they use the brooms, yeah. So um, I don't know if you've ever heard the theory that, that in the Americas there were many psychoactive plants that were available for these sorts of things. Um, whereas in Africa there are very few hmm. that grow there indigenously. And so in Africa, they developed complex rhythms as a way of inducing altered states compared to yeah, the Americas absolutely. where the music's quite simple because you just beat the drum and take the mushrooms and you're fine. That's right. And that's exactly why I, I, I was talking about altered states, right? That, that the, the concept of altered states is inextricable from Paleolithic spirituality. Now, how you achieve those states uh, that is obviously, you know, diverse. Right. Um, and in many of these caves, you know, we have found evidence of uh, burned bones. Um, and so even, even that, even the idea of being inside a cavern where animal bone is burning and being swathed in that, in that smoke, um, even that allowed for participants in whatever rituals must have taken place in these caves to... Um, experience at least in a, in a smaller level that idea of what an altered state would look like. Right, right. Are you? I know you're you're Iranian, mm -hmm. right? Were you born in Iran? Or yeah, I was born in Tehran. And were you raised in a Muslim tradition? I mean, a culturally Muslim culturally, tradition. Yeah, right. the way most people are culturally religious. Yeah. So where are you now, like personally, in in terms of spirituality? I'm a Sufi. I I yeah. follow the the Sufi. Uh, teachings within within Islam, which is a it's mystical a, sect. That's I, right. Yeah, sect is the right word. It's a branch. A branch. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's the it's the mystical branch of, right. of Islam. And, the, the, and it comes in about a, a thousand of, different flavors. A lot of dance, right? Is there is one. Used to achieve there are versions of, of Sufism. Yeah, that mm. that um, the the primary ritual for Sufis is called dhikr, which is uh, a word that literally means remembrance. Mm. And there are many ways of achieving that whether through meditation or through chanting, through rhythmic motions, um, dancing. Uh, probably the most famous Sufis in the world are the whirling dervishes. Right. They, they achieve that state. And they were through, just this attack in Egypt recently. It was on a Sufi yeah, mosque, so the, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sufis, I think because of the fact that they um, are antinomian, right? That they don't, they don't <clears throat> ascribe to either the institutional authority um, and they don't necessarily ascribe to um, 
you know, the, the, the concepts of religious law have always been seen as suspect in, yeah. in, uh, in Islam and have always been attacked and have always been uh, persecuted for their beliefs as mystics of all religions. So in what sense is it a religion if they don't ascribe to the institutional authority or the nominal religious hierarchical structure? Well, this brings us to a much more complex issue, which is that there is literally no definition for religion. <laughs> there, I mean, it, literally. Um, you know, I, I'm in a field. I'm in a field of study without a definition for yeah. it. Um, and in fact, it's one of the it's one of the things that you know um, uh, scholars of religion discuss all the time, which is yeah. um, how do you define this thing that we study. Um, and there isn't any, I mean, you know, every, every definition that's ever been used has also been debunked, right. you know, I mean, s clearly you say, well, you know, religion involves uh, gods or, or a supreme being. Well, I mean, Taoism doesn't, mm. and Jainism doesn't, and Well, that's why I asked you Theravada about Buddhism, Buddhism, you know, doesn't. yeah, because I mean, the, the line between religion and philosophy or you know, code of behavior kind of isn't real distinct, is it? Right. Well, you, so other people would say, well, then a code of behavior is what, what makes a religion. Mm. But no, there are multiple codes of behavior that have nothing to do, you know, with mm. what we would refer to as religion. People right. have said, well, um, you know, uh, identity formation, well, then that would make nationalism and socialism, right. you know, kinds of religion. And people, by the way, would say that they are. Right, um, right. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, they would say, okay, how about ritual ritual expression? Okay, well, then concerts and sports right. events, yeah. uh, you know, can be religion. And indeed, there have been reams and reams uh, of papers written about sports events as religious expressions well, team and identity and, you know i'm a it, fucking yeah. packers fan like and what does that it mean it all just dude? comes down to the fact that we don't know yeah my um every scholar basically has his own uh working definition of religion my working definition is that religion is a language made up of symbols and metaphors that allows a community of faith to express to each other and to themselves the ineffable experience, the, this numinous experience. Um, and so uh, that borrows a lot from, you know, anthropologists like Levi Strauss and Clifford Geertz and mm. these guys who, who tend to think of religion in terms of language, um, in terms of means of communication primarily. Right. Um, and that's how I also view religion, yeah. as, a, as a means of communication. A means of communicating that which cannot actually be communicated. Communicated, per perfectly said. A means of expressing the inexpressible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it's the inexpressible that is the universal phenomenon. Religion isn't a universal phenomenon. Right. It's that impulse that's universal that exists in all people and in all cultures and throughout all time. Um, right. Why? Again, we just don't know. Well, it gets us back to what you were saying earlier that it could just be an epiphenomena of consciousness itself. It, you yeah. know, there could just be a point where a brain or a, a, a cognitive process reaches a point where it intuits something that it can't describe. Yeah. So the current theory, and it's just that, but it's a good one, is that it's basically a combination of a couple of different um, frontal lobe functions. Um, one of those is something called the hyperagency 
uh, I'm sorry, hyperactive agency detection device, right? Um, HADD, and the way that I put it is that this is that thing that makes you think that every bump in the night is done by someone doing the bumping, right? Right? It's it goes way back into our it's you know ancient pattern brain. recognition, right? It's it's a little bit more than that. What it does is that it compels us to assume agency mm. in any natural phenomenon mm. right. that we encounter, right? And um, and it has very clear cut adaptive advantages. Obviously, if you just simply assume that someone is doing the bumping, then you're prepared for what could be danger, right? The way that I always put it is that, you know, if you're walking, if you're in Paleolithic man and you're walking through the forest and you see a flash of light, then you should freeze or flee, assuming that that thing is someone or that it's, it's a threat, that it's not just, you know, lightning, for instance. Um, it's better to guess wrong and not be eaten is the point, right? Um, and that's what hyperagency detection device is. It's this thing that is embedded in all of our brains that just it makes us assume that natural phenomena have an agency. And if it, and it could be related to schizophrenia, for example, if it goes too far. I suppose so. Yeah, I, I don't actually know um, too much about. Have you do you know Ta Tanya Lerman? You ever heard of her work at Stanford, where she studied schizophrenics in different cultures and found like we all hear voices, but some, in different cultures, mm. the voices say different things. So in America, schizophrenics tend to hear voices that say, you know, kill yourself. You're you're mm. ugly. You're mm. horrible. Everyone hates you. In, in India, the voices tend to say things like, you know, maybe you should clean your house or do the dishes. <laughs> that sounds way better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they yeah. and they're, and they're, so they're framed differently, but everyone hears them. And my wife's a psychiatrist, mm. and, and she always talks about how she never tries to um, tell her patients how to avoid the voices. It's just how to incorporate them into our lives. Because right. we all have auditory right. hallucinations. Right. Well, so I mean, that's that's I think a really fascinating aspect of it. The other the other um, frontal lobe phenomena, I guess, that is often uh, used to explain why there is this impulse is uh, this thing called theory of mind, right. which <clears throat> people are more familiar with. Theory of mind is essentially that thing that makes you. Um, realize that someone who looks like you also feels like you right right it's an it's an empathy making mechanism um, and what it does is it uh, it keeps you from um, you know it keeps you from from acting uh, in, a, in a dangerous way uh, it, it, it allows for such things as cohesion mm. it allows for uh, filial um, emotions, right. um, but what we've recognized that's really interesting about theory of mind is that it works for inanimate objects as well. Right. That um, it can trick us into thinking that inanimate objects that um, express any kind of human quality. Um, so let's say they're bipedal, mm. or let's say they they have a face or something right, like, like that. Right, like a face and a rock or something. Face and a rock, yeah. exactly. Um, theory of mind automatically clicks in right. in the same way. 
and so we just simply assume that that thing must also have human emotions or human attributes. Right. Again, it's very easy to understand why that would have an adaptive advantage for the same reason that the hyperactive agency detection device would, right? It creates empathy, it creates unity. Um, and the prevailing theory is that those two things um, tend to also create this third phenomenon, which is this notion of uh, an immaterial self, a, a right. reality beyond this reality, right. a soul, if you will. So, two, two questions. One, I'm, I'm just laying them out here because I don't want to be taking notes, but one is, I'd like to get your take. I know you have an ongoing uh, dialogue, let's say, with the new atheists. But I'm interested in how, and I know you've acknowledged something I've always felt too, which is that the sort of militant atheism becomes a religious yeah, uh, endeavor. Yeah. Um, but it's very interesting how you know we get caught up in metaphors, and it seems to me that at this time in history, the metaphor, the sort of the the religious metaphor almost has become technological, and so the most religious expression is at this moment in history a denial of religious expression mm. even as it is an, and the other thing i wanted to ask you and maybe you'll start with this one because it's probably easier for you to answer is um have you seen you know you said that we anthropomorphize god and that this is a very ancient impulse i God is daddy. God mm. in, in the Old Testament is a, a capricious, drunk, uh, untrustworthy, yeah. uh, horrible daddy. And in other religions uh, that I've you know, studied a lot of hunter-gatherers, I don't know if I'd call their belief systems religions or not, but right. in any case, they seem to have a much more beneficial sense. They have a sense that the gods love us. They're trickster gods, mm. but they're not really bad intention. Nobody hates us. Mm -hmm. They see their world. It's a it's an abundance uh, model of the world, whereas the you know post agricultural yeah. scarcity base. And I think I see that reflected in the gods. In fact, I've argued in Sex at Dawn that the fall the expulsion from the Garden of Eden is the story of the transition from hunting and gathering to, to farming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a very, uh, it's a common sentiment nowadays. Um, uh, well, to the, to the first question, yeah, I mean, I think new, new atheism or neo-atheism uh, very much functions like a, a kind of fundamentalism. And there's a lot of, um, uh, like the, I'm sure you've experienced this. If you say anything negative about any of the major figures, you're attacked. Oh, I, I, look, I've gotten death threats from everyone, from Muslims, from Christians, from Jews, mm. you know, from Hindus. I mean, when you, when you write and talk about religion, you know, you've got to be prepared for that. Yeah. Never in my life have I been uh, exposed to such violence um, and such... Uh, extreme rhetoric yeah. than I have from new atheists. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're no Muslim, no Christian fundamentalist, uh, no Hindu extremist has ever reached anywhere near the kind of uh, 
it's extreme violent rhetoric that I so that what I is receive. what's going on there? What's the source the of that thing. energy? It's, uh, you know, look, it's not a coincidence that many of the most rabid of these uh, new atheist ideologues came from religious backgrounds. So right. I think part of it is, you know, an, an expression of identity. It's a all fundamentalism is a reactionary phenomenon. All of it, whether it's religious yeah. fundamentalism or, or you know, secular fundamentalism. Yeah. It's a reaction to something, and so that's that reaction can be quite uh, extreme. Um, but I mean, when you look at the the this idea of, you know, <clears throat> you're talking about a group that uh, is, uh, proclaims that they have the sole access to truth. Right. They're right. finding shelter in certainty. Yeah. Is is a that exactly uh, the conception of certainty that uh, those who disagree with them are not just wrong but stupid. Right. Um, that um, other other forms of truth are the products of an irrational mind. That they are under siege. That's a very important, you know, fundamentalist characteristic, mm -hmm. right? That we're the righteous minority. Right. Everybody else is wrong, and we are um, being oppressed for being right. I mean, that you hear that from every fundamentalist group. Yeah. The instinct to lash out and attack, um, the lionization of, you know, uh, charismatic leaders, um, and then. Perhaps most shockingly of all, for a group that promotes, you know, reason and science, um, is the irrationality of so much of their response. I mean, you know, the the what I always say is that the problem with new atheists is that they give atheists a bad name. That mm. they give atheism a bad name. Atheism is, you know, has three four centuries of philosophical thought behind it. Um, you know, some of my, my greatest uh, influences uh, as a scholar were atheists. Marx and Feuerbacher and, and Schopenhauer. And these guys were experts on religion mm. and were able to then talk about what is wrong with religious belief. When you look at Dawkins or Harris or these, you know, these guys, they don't know shit about religion. They don't know anything. They talk about religion in the most unsophisticated and amateurish ways that it's barely worth responding, um, you know, to their to their criticisms. Um, and then, and I think this is, you know, again, many, many, many people have written about this: the disturbing racism and sexism. Um, in this in this community, the rank mm. misogyny yeah. um, and you know the demonization of others. I mean, everything about it smacks of religious fundamentalism. Um, and then their only argument against all of this is, but we're atheists. We don't believe in, in right. God. Right. So what? <laughs> that they, Again, like yeah. you, you don't know what religion is. If you think religion is just about believing gods, that's a best example of why you know nothing about about religion. Um, to your to your second point, um, which remind me again, the the family, it, the extent, because the, what I was thinking is that it's interesting that the hunter gatherers who are oh, raised right. in a community, right, like mother and father are not really important figures. Certainly, father isn't yeah. in the hunter gatherer group. They tend to have many gods. Whereas in cultures raised in a nuclear family, there tends to be one God. 
Yeah, so I would take it back even a little bit further and say that it's the difference between the nomadic and the settled mm. communities. Um, and, and most of you know, the issues that we're talking about, not just religiously, but also socially and ethically, come from that um, transition. You know, when we're nomads, the community was all. You know, yeah. you're as strong as the weakest link. Right. Um, you can't accumulate property, right. or there's no such thing as wealth. Um, everything is equally shared. Everyone has an equal function. When you are settled, suddenly you can accumulate property. You can accumulate wealth. Suddenly, there's a stratification of society. If you're settled. You now have to create a, a geographical boundary, which then needs to be protected. And now you have a warrior class. Right. You have institutions that create rules um, for everyone within this settled community to abide by, so that everyone can actually, um, you know, get along and 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 the, the the community can succeed. And what do you need if you have rules? Well, you need people to enforce them. You need people to make them. Now you have a hierarchy of authority. Um, when we were nomadic, we, car we literally carried our gods with us. But now that we are settled, our gods have to be settled too. Mm. And what do the gods need? They need shelter, just right. like we need shelter. Right. So we build them temples. And a temple needs what? A priesthood. So now you have an intermediary all of a sudden between us and the gods. Um, all of those issues come from this one profound transition yeah. uh, between the nomadic and the sedentary. Yeah. You ever read Wondering God by Morris Berman? Uh, no. It's a good, no, good book. Yeah. It really gets into this issue mm -hmm. of, of the, the notion of God among people who are nomadic. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I know you have a hard stop, so I don't want to take up more of your time. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Chris. I, enjoyed I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd love to do it again. For sure. All right. Hope you enjoy that. Uh, I sure did. There's so many things I didn't get a chance to ask him about, though. Uh, you know, crazily, like we didn't talk about sex. Why Why do religions seem to have this obsess, obsession over sexuality? We didn't really talk about death. We didn't talk about how different religions view um, the life after death, if there is a life after death. And we sort of skirted around it with the acknowledgement of the non-corporeal, you know, soul or spirit or whatever. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of things that I would have loved to have uh, gotten into with him, but we just uh, didn't have time. He's on book tour, you know, maybe in a, in a couple of months when things calm down, we'll have a, a part two and, and have a more leisurely conversation. If you're listening to this, Reza, come come take a hike in Topanga and we'll maybe we'll do a, a remote podcast up in the mountains somewhere. All right, everybody, stay tuned for the canned outro, and I will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks. And then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. 
and you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at T8, no, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, ChrisRyanPhD.com, TangentiallySpeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that Shore Design T-shirt. Shirts. They are fantastic. I know I say this is an ad free podcast uh, and this could be construed as an ad, but Sure Design t shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception. Bennett, who was the dude there, decided he was going to support the podcast. He sent me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. Since Bennett died, the people who took over SureDesignTShirts.com uh, have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD, and that's at suredesigntshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carseyblanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day 
to the ground. 